0: Last week, you, you know this already, that this morning's passage comes on the heels of the transfiguration of, of Jesus, the moment in which God removed the veil and the concealed deity of Christ burst through the cloak of his humanity, displaying itself in nothing less than the pure radiance of divine glory. Crazy passage of scripture. If you missed that, I would implore you uh, to go back and, and listen to the podcast. Peter, James, and John, seeing Jesus in the fullness of his splendor and glory, his radiance and beauty, right after having been told, mind you, that, that the life of discipleship is a life of self-denial and cross-bearing. Now coming down from that mountaintop experience into the valley of the shadow of death, the contrast. Incredibly intentional on Luke's part and showing us something of the human experience. Luke giving us a a window in this morning's passage into the many ways that it's possible to miss the kingdom in following Jesus. Be it lack of faith, slowness of understanding, glory-thieving pride, even anti-kingdom intolerance. All right, wow, this is a real chipper sermon, Jamie. But I think you're gonna, again, appreciate where this story is going in light of us ending season one, so to speak, this way. If you pick up in verse 37, Luke tells us, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. All right, if you were around for the Sermon on the Mount series we did a couple years ago, you may recall that that Jesus came down the mountain in the wake of that greatest sermon ever preached and immediately provided a visible illustration of what the kingdom of heaven is like, the very kingdom that Jesus had been proclaiming throughout the entirety of that very sermon. Healing a leper, in that instance, who is desperate for cleansing, poor in spirit. The cleansing of the leper, a sign of the far greater cleansing that Jesus would accomplish for your sins and and my sins. Similarly, Jesus descends the Mount of Transfiguration here in Luke chapter 9 and is immediately confronted with the darkness of evil. The confrontation itself, not only revealing to us something of the the fickle nature of the hearts of the disciples, but also the undiminished majesty of Jesus Christ in the highest of highs on the mountain and in the lowest of lows in the valley. That Jesus comes down from the mountain and is not only met by a large crowd of people, but within the crowd, the father of an incredibly disturbed young boy, a boy whom Many scholars believe to have suffered from epileptic seizures on the basis of the description of his symptoms. And yet, Luke makes clear that in this instance, this is the work of an evil spirit. A spirit, according to Mark's account of this story, determined to destroy the young boy. Mark nine twenty-two, often casting him into fire and water. And the boy's father confesses to Jesus that he had begged the disciples to cast the demon out but that they were unable to do so. You go back to the beginning of chapter nine, not too many weeks in the rearview mirror for us, Jesus had, you may recall, transferred his very own power and authority to the 12, commissioning them to cast out demons and cure diseases, making them his agents and ambassadors in extending the, the reaches of his kingdom mission. They had everything they needed. Cast out the evil spirit, tormenting the young boy at the foot of the mountain, which begs the question, why the failure on the part of the disciples? In Matthew's account of this story, Matthew 17, verse 20, we're told that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon because of their little faith. Mark's account, Mark nine we're told that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon due to a lack of prayer. The absence of prayer in and of itself, a lack of dependence upon the Lord, rooted in a lack of faith, a reliance upon the self. In the words of one commentator, on the one hand, we have those who rejoiced in the light of God on the mountaintop, going back to last week. On the other, those defeated by the powers of darkness on the plain. Keep in mind, and and I, I would venture to guess that this resonates with most every one of us in this room. I know it does for me. Keep in mind that this was only a week after the 12 had cast out demons in Jesus's name. Reminds us of just how quickly a person can fall into unbelief and self-reliant prayerlessness. It also helps to make sense of why Luke would go on to say, verse 41, and Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. These words of Jesus, they harken they back to the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, where Moses spoke of Israel's sin in response to God's goodness. Deuteronomy 32, 5, Moses sings, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, the people of Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. There's Jesus's language here in this morning's passage. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that first, uh, that first wilderness generation hardened their hearts in rebellion toward God in spite of God's provision, in spite of God's protection in leading them out of, of Egypt, the story of the Exodus. That they hardened their hearts in rebellion toward God despite having seen the miracles of the parting of the Red Sea with their own eyes, manna falling from heaven. But, but lest we think that uh, wilderness wandering Israel simply had a behavior problem, an obedience problem, the author of Hebrews, we've talked about this before as a church, says something incredibly fascinating. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19 in describing wilderness-wandering Israel. Listen to these words. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled, the author of Hebrews asks. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, listen to this, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That's a bizarre thing to say. The author of Hebrews could have said, so we see that they were unable to enter because of their grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of their fashioning of idols, of golden calves at the foot of Mount Sinai. But that's not what he says. Instead, he gets to the issue underneath the issue. If you've been a part of our church for any time, you know that's what we're after because he knows that underneath every sin is the sin of unbelief, a failure to believe that God is who he says he is, a failure to believe that his promises are true, a failure to believe in the identity that we've been gifted freely by grace in Christ, and on and on we could go. The Christian life, it's a life of fighting to believe, not ultimately and most deeply about modifying behavior, Why we talk so much as a church about the indispensability of gospel fluency that if all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then we must become a more gospel-fluent people in order to fight to believe. Coming back to this morning's passage, the disciples have a belief problem, a faith problem, a trust problem. That's why they're unable to cast out the evil spirit terrorizing a young boy at the foot of the mountain. And Jesus addresses their faithlessness along with the faithlessness of his generation. His words here presenting us with a question, one that gets to the issue underneath the issue. It's the very same question that Jesus brought before his disciples on that storm-tossed sea. Where is your faith? We all struggle with the sin underneath every other sin, the sin of unbelief, having been given an abundance of promises from God, struggling to believe those promises when things get rough, like the disciples taking matters into our own hands. Even the father here of this young boy is an object lesson for us. This is the very same man in Luke's account of this story who cries out famously in the gospels, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm a mixed bag. And that man represents all of us. So that I think it's fair for us to sit with the question this morning. It's one of many. In what way or ways in this moment, this season of your life, is God calling you to repent of unbelief? To to run to prayer as a declaration of dependence upon the Lord? Verse 42, Luke continues. While he was coming, the, the demon threw him, the young boy to the ground and convulsed him But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The evil spirit makes one last attempt at destroying the boy, throwing him to the ground as he makes his way to Jesus. The devil hates changed lives and he'll come after people right on the verge of that every time. But as Luke has shown us numerous times over, Jesus is mighty over the forces of evil evil itself fearing for its life in his presence. That the same authoritative word that spoke the universe into existence in the beginning, here commanding evil to silence itself and step aside, and just like the light that came into being in the story of creation, evil says, you got it. What else can I do? You're Jesus Christ. That that philosophical worldview known as dualism says that Good and evil are equally powerful and that we have no assurance of which of the two will emerge victorious in the end. Jesus hears that worldview and he says, dream on, as he invites us to behold the authority and power of God over the forces of evil, king of kings, lord of lords, And Jesus gives the young boy back to his father, Luke tells us, just as he had in the wake of a resurrection miracle given the widow of Nain uh, back her son. You may recall that story. So that where there was only grief and despair just a moment prior, tormented young boy, there's now overwhelming peace and joy. A once brutalized kid healed and restored to his daddy. And all Luke tells us we're astonished at the majesty of God. The same majesty that Peter, James, and John had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, now on full display in the valley of darkness. In the words of one commentator, the majesty above and the majesty below. Because Jesus Christ's majesty is inescapable. He's the radiance of the glory of God, going back to last week. And that's not just in the mountaintop experiences. Verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's crazy. The crowd is still caught up in the wonder of what's just happened. What are you doing, Jesus? You're you're cutting off worship here. People are still marveling at this point. And he looks at his disciples and he says, for the second time in Luke's gospel account, that the king must die. That the healings and exorcisms, as significant as they are, are not the central message of the gospel, but rather the sinless Son of God dying in the place of sinners. Verse 45 But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Notice those last words there. Right? They don't understand the cross. They're afraid to even try to understand. I mean, after all, we talked about this a, a few weeks back. With deeper understanding comes a call to die, to stop looking for the path of comfort and ease and least resistance, to embrace the suffering that comes before the glory. Again, I've said this before numerous times in this series, Christianity is not easy believism. It's not, I prayed a prayer back in the day and I think I meant it enough, so now I'm just gonna coast to my death and bank on that golden ticket to heaven. Jesus says, if you wanna truly follow me, two things are required, self-denial and cross-bearing. Luke's words here presenting us with yet another question. In what way or ways, Have we taken our eyes off of the cross? Perhaps afraid to understand what the implications of the cross truly mean for our lives. Following Jesus, it'll cost us our own glory. It'll cost us our own dreams and ambitions. Jesus says this, and yet the very next thing Luke tells us, listen to this, verse 46. Without so much as a pause, an argument arose among them, Jesus' disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Add pride to the list. It's the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. The disciples decided it's a good time to argue about which one of them is the greatest. After Jesus has just declared that a cross awaits. Remember, these are men who can't seem to stay awake until the end of a prayer meeting, and yet they're arguing about who's the greatest. Sounds like a lot of church folk. If We can be really candid. Some might even ask, has the church made any progress at all? She's filled with with people oftentimes standing in their own minds on one of the the higher rungs of God's great ladder, so high up in the clouds of their own arrogance that the only way to look is downward. Makes absolutely no sense as an outworking of the doctrines of grace. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this passage, these verses, he says, "'None has so little right to be proud as man, and of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian.'" all that we have, all that we are, is a gift of God's grace. If we're gonna boast about anything, Paul's right. We should boast in the cross. The disciples, they don't yet grasp the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, that the last shall be first, the first shall be last. And so Jesus establishes something of an object lesson. He takes a child and puts him by his side on the one hand, reminding us of, of what it means to receive the kingdom of God with the right orientation of faith, a childlike faith. A matter of just weeks ago, I think I've shared this with some of you, uh, we had a, a cardinal mother start building a nest in one of the bushes right outside our breakfast nook, and, and the next thing you know, there are a few speckled eggs, and around that time, uh, a friend of ours, a, family, friends uh, brought over a red lily and uh, we put it on the deck, looking out another window on our breakfast nook. And so all of a sudden breakfast time became something of a teaching opportunity for our children and, and uh, for me and my wife just as much as them to be honest with you. As we were able to look out one window and, and see the birds of the air that God cares for and then to, to look out the other win- window and see the lilies of the field, that God clothes the earth in splendor and how much more will he provide for us? And one of the most intriguing aspects of that is to talk, have talked with our children about that several times now over the last few weeks to explain that and for them to go, yeah, makes sense. Childlike faith, sure that's what God does. He cares for his own, he cares for his children. And yet I'm sitting there going, I see the same thing you're seeing, but my heart's not grabbing it like your childlike heart. The image of a child, it, it reminds us of what faith is. In the wake of the disciples, failure to believe in the casting out of an evil spirit. In addition, it's a visual demonstration of that upside down nature of the kingdom of God. The child standing by Jesus, representing the smallest and most powerless in society. Right, Our kids can grasp the object lesson. They can't go out and buy their own groceries. They're empty-pocketed. They have nothing to bring to the table unless we give them an allowance to bring it to the table. Going back to chapter three, John the Baptist had prophesied of one who would level the mountains of religious pride and who would lift up the valleys of the poor in spirit. Here Jesus gives a, pi- a picture of what true greatness is. In the words of one commentator, true greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place, when we stop seeking recognition, when we set aside selfish ambition, when we posture ourselves in humility and childlike faith. Verse 49 John answered in the wake of that moment with Jesus and the little boy, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. The object lessons just keep coming. 14 verses, now you have a fourth blunder on the part of Jesus's followers. As John brings to Jesus what many scholars believe to be an objection, As he tells Jesus of a man casting out demons in Jesus's name, a man who happens to not be a part of Jesus's inner circle of followers, a man whom John and his friends try to stop, absolutely no indication that this man wasn't a follower of Jesus, only that he was outside the circle of John and the 12. Notice that in God's great irony, that the man that John rebukes is able to do what the disciples failed to do, in exercising faith to cast out demons. And yet, Jesus' closest followers see the man as a threat to the brand. Jesus says, leave the man alone. You're fighting the wrong enemy here. Again, some might ask, has the church made much progress? To again quote J.C. Ryle, he says, Christians in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They've labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. Above all, he says, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. It's been a really bizarre, and I think you would agree, last 12 to 15 months. On the one hand, just talking to other pastor friends, there's a lot of of um, focused effort to, to try to fight for unity within the church, uh, lowercase c, so to speak, and there are some challenges that certainly have arisen in that regard, but there's equally been this really strange thing that's been happening over the last 12 to 15 months among churches where there's been this growing ecumenical charitable spirit of of church leaders looking at at other church leaders in other churches who love the gospel uh, and who uh, long for Christ to be magnified and going, we don't know what we're doing either. How are you doing it? What are you doing right now? What are you planning to do three months from now? Just a, a very uh, ecumenical, let's help each other out. As long as we love Christ, as long as souls are converted, to use Ryle's language, as long as Jesus is magnified, as long as the devil's kingdoms being pulled down, the gospel preached, sin opposed, like, let's, let's get after it together. It's been really sweet. And I'm really excited to see in the years to come what the Lord's gonna do with that as he purifies the lowercase C churches that make up the bigger capital C church, but also creates a camaraderie for the gospel to go forth. It could be a really beautiful thing. Jesus makes plain to John that the spiritual forces of evil, that's where the battle lies. The very evil that Jesus has just cast out of a tormented young boy the very evil that Jesus's disciples have been powerless against due to their lack of faith and humility. It's an incredibly sobering final episode of season one as Jesus's ministry in Galilee comes to a close. If that was it, if if it was not, we're not gonna do a second season, we'd be done for, right? What a terrible way to end a story. Here are four ways that you're gonna blow it as a follower of Jesus Christ at some point in your life. But that's not how the story ends. And so it's a great place to end season one because it helps us to see just how desperate we truly are for season two. The journey to Jerusalem where Jesus would go on to die for proud, unbelieving people like you and me. I mean, think about it this way. Isn't the patience and long-suffering of the Lord amazing? Amazing that Jesus no more abandons us in the midst of our mistakes and failures than he abandoned the disciples in chapter nine. This is a 24 chapter book of the Bible. That Jesus promises them right in the midst of all their blunders, a suffering Messiah, one who would carry their mistakes and failures up the hill of Golgotha. Aren't you grateful for where the story's headed? Aren't you grateful for the cross and empty tomb? It's there that not only is our forgiveness secured, but also our sin killing spirit empowered obedience. So that I would ask one last question this morning. Where do you see yourself in this morning's passage? Where do you sense the kindness of the Lord leading you to repentance? Knowing that your identity has been secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but on the other side of that cross and empty tomb was the sending of the spirit of God that we might actually walk in deeper obedience and deeper maximization of our joy as we follow Jesus more fully. So that I would invite you, as we come to a close this morning, to come to him like a child, knowing that true greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place.